This is an RNZ podcast. A quick warning. This podcast includes allegations of child sexual abuse, so listener discretion is advised. If any of the details are triggering, please talk to someone. If you're in New Zealand, you can call or text 1737 to speak with a trained professional. My chooks and my animal, like I had Mungo Mungo, who was my big black tomcat, who would go to sleep in the middle of the lawn even if it was raining. On June the 22nd, 1993, Peter Hugh McGregor Ellis was sentenced to 10 years in prison for the abuse of seven preschool children who'd been in his care at the Christchurch Civic Crèche. I had Big Miss, Little Miss, Middle Miss, Pody, Lily, Happy, and there might be one more. And the only cat that wasn't related was Lily, and she was pure white. From the moment he was first accused until just before the verdicts came back pronouncing him guilty, Peter Ellis said he thought it would all just get sorted out. But here he was, heading off to Christchurch Men's Prison. Roman rounded up all my animals, took them to the vet, and the vet said, we, we can't um, spay these animals, they're too traumatised. She said, traumatised? We were traumatised. In this episode, we hear about Peter's time in prison and his ongoing fight to clear his name. I'm Alexander Beezer. And I'm Ali Jones. And this is Conviction, episode 11, 2,416 days. If you were clever, you counted your time in prison as in fish and chip evenings, so that every Friday was a fish and chip night. Because if you said, I've got 10 years jail, it sounds huge. He'll be in physical danger. He's always liable to be someone who wants to take a pop at him. Right after he had been convicted of all this crap, I would have perfectly happily got him round as a babysitter to look after my children while I went out for the night. The evidence from the children he was convicted of abusing was not credible. Why maximum, is maximum security to protect yourself from other... Oh no, I was a hardened criminal. <laughs> I was dangerous. I was dangerous to prison guards. <laughs> Bad ones, I Um, I don't know, that's where I ended up, so. When we spoke about his prison stretch, Peter often referred to being in maximum security. But in reality, Christchurch Men's, also known as Paparua, isn't a maximum security prison. But Peter was initially in voluntary segregation, so he was kept separate from the general prison population. And despite his having criminal comments, it was likely for his own safety. Word's gone out that Alice is brown bread, prison slang for dead. The Kreish case was so big, everyone knew Peter was headed to jail, even those already locked up. In 1993, RNZ was reporting word from inside the prison was that Peter was in danger. Child offenders are uh, often marked men in prison. And, uh, and criminologist Greg Newbold told RNZ's Morning Report programme Peter could be in for a rough time. He'll be in physical danger especially if, he's, if he remains in Christchurch because there are people down here who feel more hotly about it. The first night of maximum security there was a little pottle full of pills and I asked what they were for us to help you go to sleep and I thought, I said, it's the middle of bloody winter. I said, I'm down in maximum security, it's as black as the ace of spades, so I'll go to sleep. So I went to sleep at five o'clock. His first full day in prison got off to a strange start. Someone opened my door, and it has to be a screw. A screw is just slang for a prison guard. And um, said I could use the bathroom. 
So I went down to the bathroom, horrified, because I said there was all this... <laughs> the seats were in a row, the toilets were all in a row, but you, you could see everyone's heads. Horrible. Anyway, so I'm having a shave and shout. That actually let out the whole main block. Peter Ellis was definitely not supposed to be in the bathroom with the main prison population. So someone had deliberately put me out. Now, I fortunately, the inmate that saw me first, he asked who I was, I said who I was, and he basically got me back down. So instead of being beaten up or worse, Peter was protected by a fellow inmate who got him out of the bathroom block and back to safety. So that was your first indication of um, where the inmates were starting to come from. I spoke to them and they spoke to me and they basically keep your head up and you'll be all right. Another couple of inmates stopped him not long after he arrived in prison. They arrived down there and they said, you've got one that shouldn't be in prison. Um, so that was the start of the PR for me. And then I didn't leave maximum security for certainly 13, I think it was nearly 15 months I was there maximum security. Yeah. And that was, that was a ball. He says that sitting in his home in Leithfield Beach, free and safe, his time in jail long past. But back in 1993, in his first month in Paparua, his mother Leslie told the Sunday Star Times he was receiving 24-hour-a-day taunts to hang himself. By late August, she reported the taunts had settled down as the other inmates had got to know him. And the inmates weren't the only allies Peter had. I had a guard one day opened the door at 7 o'clock. And he said, you know, you shouldn't be in here in the first place. He said, so you might as well make yourself useful. Now, he's dead, so we're not getting him into trouble. So Muzz opened the door and let me out. And, uh, you know, so I ended up handing out breakfast and, and, and just cleaning the, the halls and the corridors and, you know, giving a little latitude. But I'm down to maximum security where one inmate shifted by four officers. So is maximum security is always behind closed doors? Uh, I, it will have changed in my day, so the bottom line is, yeah, it was, it, was, it was a dirty big metal door you went through. Christchurch Men's Prison is located to the west of Christchurch. It housed about 600 inmates on average. He was initially sent to the West Wing. My cell was on the outside of the, the maximum building, and it was just past the tower, so my cell actually got the, uh, the uh, signal for, for the racing. <laughs> Group. And uh, it wasn't unknown to have several officers sitting in my cell cheering on the, the, the New Zealand Trotting Oaks or whatever from Auckland or whatever. It gives you a general idea of where prison officers were with me. Um, there was the odd you know, one that was, and again, more homophobia than anything else, I think. Uh, there was a closed chair and an unclosed chair. So if you wanted to go stand out in the sunshine, you could sunshine. If you wanted to go stand out in the rain, you could go have your chair out in the, in the bit and get rained on. There's no communal area, there's no... No, you're no, just no, 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 basically. Yeah, yeah basically. I mean, you, I could speak to the... I could see the one directly opposite me. But through the door? Yeah, it was through the peephole. I could net it to him. And I could talk to the one directly beside me through the mouse hole but not the next one. So there was one, two, three, basically. Must be the first 15 months wearing pyjamas and, um, and socks. 
You wouldn't have drunk in prison, I guess, right? Would no, you? I didn't drink in prison. Can, no. you get, can people get access to it? You could be leading questions. No, no, no. Of course no. you can get, mate. Ah. Look, <laughs> there was a very, very good prison officer who called me into one of the back row office one day and he asked me if I'd like to sample it. She said, it's one of the better brews. It was a kiwi fruit based one. I said no. I was sort of tempted just to see what it tastes like, but um, I said no because uh, I didn't want to. Because I, I mean, you go into prison. And I said if you're an alcoholic, they, they don't do anything with you. If you're a, a drug addict, I said they'll do you on the methadone program. Yeah, but if you're an alcoholic, bad luck. You just go in there and dry out. Well, that was my understanding. I certainly didn't get any help. Uh, and I was waiting for spiders to come out of the walls and whatever, whatever. I drank a lot. Um, but, uh, no, I skipped that one. The visiting room was a tiny, it was about, about the size of a toilet block, where, where, you know, toilet room with three chairs bolted to the floor and the door, which you could see into. Um, I actually went to clean in there once and I went off camera <laughs> and as I said, half the blooming prison guards came right and it wasn't that bad. You know, came down to find out where I'd gone and it was me innocently on my <laughs> busily cleaning when sort of four officers shot through the door. <laughs> Sorry, I just didn't know. Anyway. As Peter said, after a while he got given odd jobs to do. He also mixed more with other inmates. There were two kingpins in that, that one there, not to be doubled up with. Anyway, I, I came out sitting on this table, it was right outside my cell, there was a big long table. I mean, I had coffee and cigarettes and whatever, 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 and a paper. And um, the boys kept sat down around me, they were about to start hissing me, and um, uh, this, the older of the two guys came up and said, would I be able to have your paper after, you've, after I'd finished it? Not before, after. I'm not, at that stage he just looked like an old bumbling fat old fool and not, I didn't realise what he was and I said not a problem being, thinking it would be nice for a fat old bumbling man to have my paper and one of them was starting to rip the paper up and he stopped doing that with a pen and they sort of started sitting back a wee bit and the other one turned round and he said uh, my mum thinks you're innocent so I said that's good enough for me so that was sort of the end of the West Wing nonsense, as far as anyone's giving me a smack around the head or whatever. Remember back in 1993, Canterbury University criminologist Greg Newbold said convicted child offenders were marked men in prison. Now Greg knows the prison system, has been behind bars himself, so he has an interesting perspective on this case. When he was convicted, I was really surprised and um, I was interviewed by the media about what sort of a reception a paedophile like this was going to get in prison. And I said, well, I think if the people in prison have been watching the, following the news, I think they'll agree with me that he's not been convicted on credible testimony. In 1993, though, this view didn't go down all that well with some. Subsequently, I had a group of grandparents of uh, the victims knocked on my door and they insisted that I retract my comments protecting a paedophile and was therefore possibly a paedophile myself. 
because as we know, paedophiles protect paedophiles. And um, I, I refused and I, I told them they, were, they could believe what they wanted, but I was also free to say what I believed to be true. There were plenty of others who felt the same way Newbold did, and some of them spent time in prison with Peter Ellis. I've got this letter sent from an inmate to Peter's family. The man's parole condition meant he couldn't speak to me, but he was happy for us to read out some bits of this letter. Peter Ellis first appeared on my TV while I was in Paremoromo Maximum Security Prison. I didn't think too much about him until one day while I was doing my job as a medical cleaner. A main block inmate was in the TV lounge in the hospital, and the news featured an item about the Christchurch Civic crash case, and the main block guy, a seriously heavy dude as most of them were, said, that poor fucker's been set up. I was quite gobsmacked by this. To the vast majority of inmates in this country's prisons, any mention of crimes against children and they're immediately labelling the alleged perpetrator as a kid fucker. But I didn't hear a single person in Parry Maxi say anything other than they thought the whole thing was complete and total bullshit. After spending a number of years in Parry Maxi's assessment block, I was finally given a transfer to Totata Unit, Rolleston Prison, in May 1996. That's where he would meet Peter Ellis, but that's a bit later in the story. We'll hear more about their friendship shortly. Back in Paparua, Peter did many different jobs, like cleaning, as he mentioned earlier, or working in the library. He would also just help out his fellow inmates. He could often be found sitting with illiterate prisoners writing letters to family or statements for parole hearings. And it was this gift for writing that paved his way to becoming more active in the social side of prison life. I met Peter uh, the first time when he was in uh, what we called Maxi, and after he, he came into prison. Stephen Ferguson was a prison chaplain who became a close friend to Peter Ellis. He was often present during my interviews and he helped to get this podcast off the ground by encouraging Ellis to talk to me. And then over a period of time he got to trust me because he had a high level of mistrust of all professional people um, because of what he considered um, unprofessionalism by the social workers and those dealing in this case. So it took a long time to build trust. Then on, on Christmas, um, the family day was a, a big day that Peter organised and, and inmates really, really appreciated it. Um, and they generally went off very, very well. So I worked at Salvation Army. Um, for soft toys and every letter came back all supportive and my mum bought a lot of things over the year right up to Christmas from out of the warehouse so there was chocolates and things like that and I put them out for Christmas time in the, uh, the dining room and for visiting you know kids and things like that so they had a good Christmas all that kind of excitement was I was Allowed to do an awful lot, but it was was a tacit, you know, permission of the factions within the prison, mm. um, and partly because I said it, it actually helped. It didn't, you know, I mean, it didn't hurt anyone. Peter often drafted in his family and friends on the outside to help. Paula was one of them. Often at Christmas time, he would send me through a list of 
from prison of what he would he could use for Christmas dinner. So it was usually pavlovas and fruitcakes and things like that. And I would go to Copeland's and get them all and then drive them out to the prison and take them into the management area and they would make sure that Peter got them because he was very, very popular and well-liked in prison and he ran a lot of the community initiatives and one of them was was that he always made sure that Christmas was a little bit more special than what could just be put on for by corrections. Well, I think first time I went to see him at prison was when he was in protection. This is Bronwyn. Remember, she sorted out Peter's pets when he was sent away. It was all weird. I found it really strange. I knew that the whole prison thing was uh, new to me as an adult. So it felt really strange, but I was going to do this because I was. <laughs> it seemed like a a good person thing to do. Do you remember that first time you oh, saw him? Well, he, he looked grey. Maybe he was grey. Um, I'm not sure. I know that sometimes he'd dyed his hair before, so he may have genuinely been grey. Um, everything about it, he, he was both embarrassed and defiant at the same time. He was just Peter. There was nothing about his demeanour that didn't sit in my head of how someone should be or could be when they were inside for things that they believed were not fair. Yeah, so it was pretty bit more bitter than the Peter that I was accustomed to, but it seemed to me appropriate. I mean, my, my crash workers came and visited me. They, all, they, all, they were all on a roster, basically. They all came and visited different times. Peter's main visitor, though, not surprisingly, was his mum. She visited every weekend. She bought a packet of 20 Benson and Hedges with her, tailor-made, of which I smoked tea in each session. I was relatively wealthy in prison, I suppose. I had I had two 50 grams and a 30 gram and a, and a bag of coffee and a Rexona aft underarm. Try doing that now and a packet of 50 grams at about $80. He's talking about the pouches of roll-your-own tobacco that come in 30 or 50 gram amounts. Although his mum was delivering all these pricey goods to him, her visits, in fact any visits, weren't always easy. She went overseas to my brother's first wedding. And I thought, oh, God, I'm going to have a break from visiting. She had a roster organised, so a break. Um, I suppose it gets to a point of time, maybe lots of things, like even people like people that help you. There's only so many times you can smile before your face hurts. Um, and to be grateful. Sometimes you don't want to be grateful. During his time in prison, Peter became a prolific letter writer, and those letters gave friends like Bronwyn a strong sense of what his life in prison was really like. He managed to continue to be the Peter that was attractive and friendly and bouncy, even though he was bitter. He seemed to make friends, he seemed to me, 
to um, be well treated in comparison. And as I say, when I went into prison and worked there for a bit, I really got to see the extent to which he really was uh, looked after there. He, he made friends. He made friends amongst the, the guards. He made friends amongst the inmates. During the five, six years of making this podcast series, one of my highlights was being given a collection of those letters Ellis wrote. And he wrote a lot. He had a very distinctive style. He was Peter. He wrote a lot about the case. He wrote about gossip. He wrote about what he knew or had heard about this family or that family. He wrote about life in prison. Me, I, I, I mostly just, I get the impression that I mostly just wrote, not quite postcards, but in comparison. There was nothing much that I wanted to say to him. There was, um, except for, you know, here I am, I'm still on your side. Uh, so if something came up in the news or, you know, I'd chat to him about my children or I'd just be chatty. And he was good at, it. Pictures. You've had a look at some of uh, somebody else's letters, mm. yes? Yeah. So did he did he send letters um, and yeah, pictures? Yeah. Yeah, drawings and things. Lots of cats. We talked about cats a lot. We've put some of these letters and drawings up on the RNZ website, rnz.co.nz/conviction. And to give you a sense of his writing style, here's an extract from a letter he sent to his colleague. It has a heading: Life goes on. It starts. I will have you know that I have lost a stone and a half since coming to Paparua. This will explain the lack of my double chin. My stomach is flat as a pancake and I report no love handles, which is not bad for a person of my advanced age. Now quickly, Peter was 35 or maybe 36 at that point. And he goes on. Mind you, I checked weights a while ago and 11 stone was the average weight for a person of my age. So at nine and a half stone, I must be underweight. No sherry is responsible for my weight loss. Imagine just how much sugar there must be in a flagon of sherry. Lots of exclamation marks. I also seldom eat dessert here, and I still don't eat any breakfast, so I'm not eating heaps. I also do not buy rubbish in my buy-up. Some guys buy biscuits, chips, chocolate, etc. and pig out. All right, I confess, I don't do any exercise. I seldom did anything other than walking on the outside. I've been blessed with some good family genes, so, so far, I've needed little maintenance. I'm nearly at the end of your letter, the last bit on a slip of paper. My new date is the 25th of July, so on I march. I don't expect to see Mr Pankhurst until around June, and Rob cannot do anything until he finds out what angle Mr P is going to take. Well, that's it from me now. I think this Wednesday will be your turn to visit. Take care, you two. Lots of love, Peter. When he wrote that letter, Peter Ellis had been in prison for more than a year. The new date he mentioned is the date of his first appeal, 25th July 1994. It was just self-evident that this evidence was nonsense uh, and not believable. So uh, that's really, from my perspective, the starting point of my involvement, that, that decision to try and advance the case, the appeal on that basis. This is retired High Court Justice Sir Graham Pankhurst. Now he wasn't initially working on the Ellis appeal, that job was given to Nigel Hampton QC. Nigel had been given the, the 
appeal and at that point I said, I said you're not to touch the sentence status quo or, or they admit that the whole thing was a fiasco and I said if I was guilty of those things then I'd expect to see someone get at least 10 years. The appeal hearing was set down for November 1993 but there were a couple of delays and then Hampton fell ill in 1994 and this is when Graham Pankhurst took over. He took on Alice's case and presented his submission to the Court of Appeal in late July. On behalf of Alice, QC Graham Pankhurst had contended the evidence from the children he was convicted of abusing was not credible. This is RNZ's Merle Noland on Morning Report. He also submitted it had been obtained unfairly by questionable interviewing techniques. But the Crown has rejected this, saying the jury spent more than two days carefully considering all the evidence before reaching its verdicts. It has stressed the age of the children and the difficulty young victims have in discussing sexual abuse which happened when they were only three or four years old. The Crown spoke of great fear in the children and how some said it was this that stopped them speaking out sooner or taking such a long time to disclose what happened. One mother, a greatly experienced psychiatric nurse, said she'd never seen anyone as frightened as her daughter when she told her of what Alice had done to her. Another little boy is reported telling his mother he expected to die because he had told of the sexual abuse. The appeal hearing before three judges is expected to end on Friday. For Morning Report, Mel Noland. That expectation was not met. The appeal was suddenly adjourned the very next day. I'm not sure whether you, you will be aware, I guess, of, of just what happened, but we started the appeal on a Monday and it was that very day, that evening, that the child who retracted her, her evidence approached a mother and said, uh, you know, I, I told lies because I, I thought that that's what everyone wanted me to say. For Peter's new lawyer, Graham Pankhurst, this bombshell revelation had the potential to flip the case on its head. Out of the blue, she admitted telling lies because she thought that's what everyone wanted. Now, <clears throat> I don't know how exactly, but the parents of that girl um, spoke to somebody in the High Court in Christchurch, uh, and I was contacted, as was the court. And at an early stage in the hearing, it might have been Tuesday, I guess, we were called into chambers, as it is called, which is not in the courtroom itself, but in a room where the three presiding judges were sitting and they asked, well, what do you want to do about this? And I'd had very little time to think about it, but I said I wanted to have her interviewed by somebody truly independent, who was acceptable to me, somebody who I could, who I knew wouldn't have a, an ax to grind in any, in any way. So I nominated one person he, as it proved out, couldn't do it, and then another barrister from Christchurch did, Nicholas Till. The retraction came from a girl known as Zelda. I remember we're using the pseudonyms given by Lindley Hood in her book A City Possessed, just to keep things straight. So Zelda claimed Peter Ellis had indecently assaulted her while he was babysitting her at his flat. She also accused him of touching her anus and vagina and inducing her to touch his penis at the creche. The charges covered a period from 1986 to 1988, so she would have been three or four when the abuse began. Peter was found guilty on all three charges. She was far and away the most uh, credible of the witnesses. She was the oldest. 
the Crown called her as the first witness that, in, at the trial. She'd been babysat by Peter during uh, holiday periods when the parents needed somebody to look after her, so he had opportunity to have abused her. And as soon as I'd read the evidence, I regarded her as the most credible of the witnesses. And then all of a sudden we get this news that she's no longer in the, in the picture, that she's saying it was lies. My sense of the retraction was that that was almost fatal to the Crown case. Martin van Banen recalls her testimony. I'd seen that child give evidence. She was the oldest one, and I thought she was the most credible. I thought she was, if I was going to choose any child that, that I thought had given the most plausible, reliable evidence, it was her. And then she recanted. And I thought, man, well, that's, that has got to be fatal. It showed how the influence of parents and friends and the general climate can still have an impact on children, even though you try to protect them. Once he had Nicholas Tilt's report on the retraction, Graham Pankras went straight out to the prison to tell Peter Ellis the news. I recall that on the way we stopped and we brought him a packet of cigarettes because he, he was a long-term smoker. Um, <clears throat> I didn't know that, but it was something that Rob told me as we were going out that day. And we went and <clears throat> spoke to him on a room in the prison and we gave him the cigarettes first and then we said, well, there has been this, this development, you're aware of that, but you don't yet know what it is. And we told him, without giving any detail, one of the children has retracted. So we gave him the document. There's this lovely anecdote in Lindley Hood's book. Apparently, Till's report was headed, The Queen versus Peter Hugh McGregor Ellis. And when Peter Ellis was given it, he said, which one am I? Now, apart from that light moment, Graham Pankow says Alice took the developments very seriously. I was dumbfounded because he read it from start to finish without saying a thing as he smoked a cigarette. <clears throat> and then at the end of it, he said, as I recall, this is what I've been saying all along. These children are labouring under the, <clears throat> the burden of having given evidence saying that I did these things when they know that I didn't. And that is not good for children to be living in, in that sort of situation. And I was completely floored by that because I had expected that somebody in his predicament serving a, a sentence of 10 years, reading a document which was an unequivocal retraction of everything that she had said, um, uh, would have stopped partway through reading the pages and said, what does this mean? What do you think it will happen? Does this mean that I'm going to be acquitted? Uh, the appeal's going to be allowed and so on. But no, not a thing about himself. The first concern that he speaks about is the welfare of the children. And I was blown away. I just couldn't, it just, <clears throat> Until then, I guess there was a lingering doubt that, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this evidence is sufficient to show that he had abused children. But when he said that, I thought, this is it. You know, I just cannot possibly believe that this man committed these crimes. A week later on February the 5th of August, the appeal resumed. 
to me, that retraction was a major development. I thought that's the beginning of the end of the Crown case. But there was a problem. Nicholas Till, the lawyer who'd taken Zelda's retraction, didn't believe her. He thought the retraction was the lie and her original abuse claim the truth, and that's what he told the court. Although his report said that he'd tested her statement from a number of different angles and she was adamant she'd lied, he felt that Zelda was just unhappy and confused. He concluded that she'd withdrawn her allegations to remove the case from her life and possibly to help Peter, who had been a close friend. Pankhurst argued that the retraction was spontaneous and unsolicited and had been tested rigorously. He said, quote, Her courage in coming forward in all the circumstances is poignant and compelling. Her action cannot be lightly discounted. But it was discounted. Just dismissed out of hand, really, by the Court of Appeal in a few sentences. Um, you know, we are satisfied that... Um, what she said was truthful, although she may now genuinely believe that she told lies. And that was about the extent of it, which I just thought was virtually cavalier. Good evening, this is Checkpoint with Adele Broadbent. The Court of Appeal quashed three convictions involving a child who retracted her allegations against Alice. The court said such retractions are quite common in sex abuse cases involving children, and it wasn't convinced the retraction was genuine. And that result, what was the outcome of that appeal? Disastrous. That was the appeal in which uh, the convictions were upheld. So it upheld 13 of the convictions and the 10-year jail sentence. Which caused me tremendous grief <laughs> and had all manner of uh, implications for me, frankly. I, I was shocked uh, by the terms of the judgment. Uh, I, I just could not fathom or anticipate that the court could treat some of the arguments in what I thought was quite a cavalier fashion. Um, everything that uh, was put up was just rejected out of hand, really. So I just found it a very corrosive uh, situation. I just, I'd lost faith, if you like, in, in the system and particularly in the Court of Appeal, uh, <clears throat> I just felt disillusioned and was sort of thinking to myself, do I really want to continue in this, in this profession doing this um, when you, you know, you were just affected to that degree by something. A lot of judges during my 18 years in the job, spoke to me about Alice and wanted to know what my thinking was. Uh, and it became apparent to me that uh, there are a significant number of judges in New Zealand uh, who, uh, frankly, were very uncomfortable about this, this whole outcome, which was some comfort. The outcome for Alice, though, was crushing disappointment. His hopes had been raised both with being allowed to appeal and with the child's retraction. But months later, he still considered guilty and will remain behind bars. His reaction is summed up in this letter he wrote to a colleague. It's so nice to know there is a lot of support out there for me. It helps me to keep on going, though for now I know I am nearer the edge than even I wish to admit to. I fear for mum at times. 
I can see by the photo in the star, she's taken the so-called judgment very hard. I almost wish there were no more options left, but Graham Pankhurst says there are a couple. I don't know if I want a chance of more hope. It is suffocating to think there is. One can only hope for so much. I think Mum and I are putting on brave faces not to let each other down, or let down you brave people who have supported me. Time will come for a tear, but for now I'm too frightened to let go. I do not know if I will ever be the same if I let go. I need some time to myself mentally before I move on to the next stage. For the children and their families though, the result was a win. They're elated that um, for the second time a court has believed their children. This is Wendy Ball, a Christchurch College of Education lecturer who told RNZ's Checkpoint programme she'd been in touch with a number of the families involved. They're relieved it's the end of the, this process and now they have to get on with their lives and dealing with the rest of the reaction of the re abuse on their own children and on their own lives. She said the hearing was tough on the kids. They have seen Peter Ellis on TV and that has really increased their fears. A lot of the parents have reported and a lot of the children have, have uh, gone back in terms of having problems with their toileting. Um, one child's been um, sleeping under the bed for fear that Peter might come and get her. Um, it's hoped that those types of behaviours, and I mean that's just the tip of the iceberg, will start to ease off now and they can feel secure knowing that Peter's sentence um, continues and that they're safe again. After more than two years at Paparua Prison, Peter was transferred to Rolleston. And that inmate we heard from earlier, well, this is where they met. A couple of days after I arrived there, I was given work in the unit kitchen. As we were dishing out the evening meal on my first day in the kitchen, I noticed an aloof, long-haired guy wearing eyeshadow, not something one sees every day whilst incarcerated. Over the next few days, I kept hearing my fellow kitchen workers mention Cindy Crawford, who was another of our fellow inmates. So I asked a kitchen worker if that dude with the eyeshadow was Cindy Crawford and was rather surprised when he said it was in fact Peter Ellis. A number of times when things were getting a bit too much for him, Peter would come to my hut and I'd hold him while he cried on my shoulder. What can you say in a situation like that? There, there and it'll be alright just don't seem to cut it somehow. He even asked me on a number of occasions how I handled being locked up for so long. My only response to that is, what's the alternative? I'm just glad I was able to offer him some comfort when things looked rather grim for him. At other times it was me going to him with my problems and fears, particularly about my kids, and Peter would help me through the hard times. I believed he helped me a hell of a lot more than I helped him, or so it seemed to me at the time. Rolleston Prison is a lower security facility to the southwest of Christchurch. Peter Ellis had many more freedoms at Rolleston, and from this story, it was clear he made the most of it. I got planter boxes put in round, round our whole unit, and I was Dougie and Harry were a couple of preventative teaching inmates, and um, I was bagging up some trellis somewhere. I was doing something, and Dougie goes, are you meant to be doing that? And I says, Dougie, says, oh, no, Harry was the older one. Harry, I said, I said, I said, see those officers over there? I said, they don't know whether I am meant to be or not meant to be either. So if it looks like I'm meant to be, I'm meant to be. So, and of course, they never came and asked. Debbie's mum got a bit of a kick out of Peter's garden. 
I took plants and things for him. Nobody ever questioned it, and they didn't search you as much as they do now. Prison visiting, and um, I used to take plants, and we could take food and have have afternoon tea out there, and we'd have a bunch of us if it was somebody's birthday, and nobody ever stopped us. And the really funny thing is, I remember in Peter's garden once there were a whole lot of poppies. <laughs> It was a bit of a laugh. <laughs> yes, so nobody said anything. I left in the January for Le Mans Villas. In 1999, Peter was transferred back to Paparoa, but this time he was placed in the self-care huts, a unit called Le Mans Villas. This is where prisoners live in a flatting-type environment so they can practice the skills they'll need to transition back into the community. I arrived... Um, I had a prison officer who, he was, he was a tough prison guard, but um, we were heading over there, he said, I suppose you're going to write a book about us. I said, why would I want to end up with a bargain bin with Gay Oaks and Alan Duff? Um, so we just netted and I said, I said look, you know, because mum used to bring in books, um, you know, Val McDermott and stuff like that for me to read. And... Um, and he used to read them, so I said, yeah, we we came to, you know, we said conclusion and da da da. And Dan was waiting for me. Dan was a fellow inmate. And he was looking at me and and suddenly his jaw dropped. And I realised he was looking over my shoulder and I didn't know what he was looking at. And I turned around and this officer had picked up my television and some other things and actually carried it in. Side. Now, there'd be no way in hell he would have done that unless he, we found some grounds of respect. So, yeah, that was a bit of a surprise. And um, anyway, so I, I was looking at the inmates around here and I said to Dad, I've been dying for you to come over here. So I asked about so-and-so. Oh, he chopped his missus up with a machete. Oh, dying for me to come over here, dying for me to come over here. I said, I said oh, that one there, they, they sawed up some people and put them off the side of the boat in Caroline Bay. <laughs> so we were in some fairly hefty sort of people. In these villas, the prisoners are given control of their daily living needs. They do their own cooking, budgeting and weekly grocery shopping. I didn't go shopping when I went to Le Mans Villas. I didn't go shopping, as I said, because that meant I left the prison grounds. You each, there were four people in the houses. So theoretically, each person had, a, had went out and shopped. It was, it was, you were meant to get back into the swing of life from out of Le Mans Villas. So you lived in these houses. Um, and I refused to go. I said, I said, I said I'm, you know, I'm not going out of this prison unless it's either in a box or you lot have pardoned me or sorted, sorted out the ship. Peter stubbornly maintained his stance, even when the opportunity for early release came up. So in New Zealand, after serving a certain portion of your sentence, you become eligible for parole. Usually you have to plead your case to the parole board, show you've spent your time in prison well. The other thing I really love, and it's worth repeating if it hadn't, is Elsa's words and he refused parole. Um, that was superb. May I read that or? This is journalist Alan Sampson, who wrote for the Dominion newspaper for nearly 20 years through the 80s and 90s. He's reading Peter's words. I would like to thank the board for the opportunity to appear here today I cannot accept my, any parole that you could offer me because the board can only release me as a guilty man. I am a human being and of course I very much want my freedom, but I simply cannot accept it if it is to be given on the basis that I am a guilty man. I am not a guilty man 
I'm an innocent man. That made me cry. The parole board said it had no option but to decline parole after that statement. You got locked down in the house at night, you could stay up to your heart's content. Um, and it got opened at six o'clock. One of the highlights was the arrival of Fergus. So Fergus arrived, that's right, dear Fergus, as soon as the news went at six o'clock, I'd opened the doors. I got him coming to a whistle because he had to get locked down as well. Yes, sir, I remember that cat. This is Stephen Ferguson, the prison chaplain and Peter's close friend. I bought Fergus for him from a pet shop. I'm not sure whether Peter named Fergus after myself or another inmate that was actually doing time. It doesn't make any difference, but Fergus was Fergus. Now, Fergus could actually follow us round. You know, follow, he'd follow us, he'd go walking with Dan and I. Peter recalls the vet coming to ensure that there were no kitten explosions. <laughs> so Fergus got fixed and uh, all these hardened murderers all sitting there. And then Fergus's bit was done, of course, popped out one testicle, everyone went bright green and they left the room. <laughs> Throughout his time in prison, Peter Ellis twice appealed his convictions and requested three pardons. All were denied. By the end of 1999, as we were ticking over into a new century, Peter Ellis had served two-thirds of his 10-year sentence, and under New Zealand law at the time, that meant he was up for automatic release. I think I had a parole hearing two days before I was going to be released. <laughs> two days before I was released, there was a parole hearing. And so a prison officer arrived to escort Ellis to the hearing. And he came over to get me and I said, I said, I'm stupid. I said, I'm going out the door. And I said, I said I'm not going to no parole hearing. So I didn't turn up to that one. Um, came across the news that I'd refused parole. And uh, <laughs> the, so that must have come across, the, let's say, at the half past 11 news, the 12 o'clock news, the parole hearing board turned me and said, well, we can throw them out if we want to anyway. Oh, well, it's just ducky, isn't it? Ellis wondered what would happen if the parole board decided to release him, but he refused to leave. Joe Nata, he was an older Maori um, guard, um, probably ex-army. He was, he was actually was a delight, was Joe Nata. And uh, so I said to Joe, and he said, well, he said, he said <clears throat> he <goes>, Ellis, <clears throat> he said, we would lock down the wing, then five or six of us officers would come and get your clothing <coughs> and your belongings and we'd put them on a trolley and then we'd drive you down to the end of the road <coughs> and leave you there. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so it was, quite, it was being quite serious. That would have been... So I would have been left at the end of, end of the main road if the parole board said, said you're going. On the 2nd of February 2000, Peter Ellis was released from prison. He had served seven years of his 10-year sentence. So, and I'm thinking, well, hold still. This, that's not making sense either. I mean, if I'm meant to be that hardened, hardened pedophile that was meant to have, according to some, some sources, have meant to have been abusing up to 100 and something odd children and kept them all quiet, you know, as I said, how come was I being released so quickly? Yeah, I took Fergus home and some of Peter's gear, he, he, he developed a lot of artwork and, and everything else, so that, that all went home to Leafield Beach. Stephen Ferguson helped Peter move, ferrying his belongings 
and Fergus the cat in the evening and then returning for him the next morning. Pete was re- released early. Um, I think I might have been in there at half past five in the morning. Stephen describes how carefully managed Peter's release was. We might have driven out the gate about six and then took him to Leafield Beach and I stayed till seven o'clock and he was released from my care um, and from prison at seven o'clock on the morning of his release. And of course, the media were all um, at the prison gate and the unit manager was just biked to work and at seven o'clock said that Mr Ellis had been released. And then, of course, it allowed um, Peter and the solicitor to have a managed press conference and, and that worked really well. We started this podcast with extracts from that press conference. Today is a day of mixed emotions for me. Even though the battle to clear my name is not yet won, I want everyone to know that just because I have been released from prison, that the fight to clear my name does not Because there was no abuse of children at the civic crash. Thank you. Peter Ellis was free, but his life looked very different. He still had Fergus. Fergus left the night before I left. He arrived out at Leafield Beach where Mum and Fergus met each other. But the other animals he had before he was sent away, the chooks and all those cats, Little Miss, Big Miss, Middle Miss, they were all long gone. The chooks, Paula took the chooks. Um, they never came back. Well, they either died. I mean, I was in jail for seven years, so... Yeah, so I, I never got any of those animals. Oh, Nina, Nina went to... I did get to see Nina, uh, but I left her with um, Jenny. Nina ended up staying with Jenny. So I got a phone call and um, Jenny said, she one moment she said, I'm just, just, just dishing up um, Nina's uh, French toast. I said, you can keep the fucking thing. <laughs> French toast, is how likely if I want that thing back. And the shadow of his convictions would stay with him. Minutes past seven. You're with Morning Report. The Commissioner for Children is speaking out in support of the children abused by the former Christchurch crash worker Peter Ellis. Roger McClay says it should not be forgotten that Ellis is a convicted paedophile. And while his jail term will end today, the suffering of his victims will not. In the next and final episode, we look at the long shadow this case has cast. Children uh, who have become very insular, very much into themselves, not trusting behavioural problems in terms of adapting to relationships with other children. Utterly, utterly, utterly dis- complete distrust of, um, of the media now. There's no one, no one that would chance their arm, as you've, not- as you've found. There was some very, very dark times. There was times when, when Peter was very fragile. Thanks for listening to Conviction, the Christchurch Civic Crash Case, hosted by Ellie Jones and Alexander Beezer. Conviction was made by Monsoon Pictures International, with support from RNZ and New Zealand On Air. The series was written and produced with help from Aliki Siantolis, Liz Garten and Tim Watkin. Blair Stackpole was the audio engineer. The voice actor in this episode is Jordan Dunn. Thanks go out to RNZ's commissioning team, Kay Elmers and Tim Burnell, for giving this project the green light. 
and to Hingyi Kong for designing the webpage. And to Nataonga Sound and Vision for help with some of the archival audio, as well as MediaWorks Discovery, Getty Images, TVNZ, and the Livingston Family Trust. The key image for the series is courtesy of North and South. Conviction can be found on the podcast page of the RNZ website. It's also available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. Follow the series so you don't miss an episode.